Hello and welcome to episode 128 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Alegi, and today I welcome a very special guest, Professor Sharif Keita, who is the William H. Laird Professor of French and the Liberal Arts at Carleton College in Minnesota. Professor Keita teaches Francophone literature of Africa and the Caribbean, as well as language courses. He has published extensively on both social and literary problems in contemporary Africa, has a special interest in the novel and social change in Mali, where he's from, oral tradition, and the relationship between music, both traditional and modern, literature and culture in Africa. Professor Keita is an award-winning documentary filmmaker and has made several films in South Africa, particularly focusing on the founding figures of the African National Congress, such as Jean Langalibalele Dube, and his wife, Nogutela. Welcome. Thank you, thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to meet you finally, after reading about you for so many years. So I'm glad that uh, we are sitting face to face. the rare academic who <laughs> straddles Francophone and Anglophone Africa. <laughs> you have a very interesting personal story. Can you mm -hmm. tell the listeners how your personal and professional journey unfolded from Mali to the U.S. to South Africa and everywhere in between? Well, it's a very long story, but I'll try to make it uh, short enough. Uh, okay, but uh, well, you know, again, I was born in Mali, uh, West Africa, at the time when uh, Mali was the French Sudan because we were a French colony up until 1960. And before the colonial days, you had the, the empire of Mali with the Sunjata Keita, who was uh, one of my ancestors, who was the, you know, the person who made uh, this uh, state formation and empire. So anyway, so uh, born in the colonial days and uh, born in Bamako, the capital city, but uh, very quickly I uh, began part of my life uh, in a small village uh, on the uh, banks of the river Niger called Joliba. Uh, Joliba is uh, known uh, uh, in relation to Salif Keita, uh, a well-known uh, world music uh, figure from Mali. So he and I are cousins. Uh, we grew up together. He's my elder, but uh, we grew up together in the same village in Joliba. My father, uh, Nambala Keita, uh, was the nurse of the village. And uh, so very early in my childhood, he was posted there. So um, me and my siblings were all born in that village. Uh, that's where I started my school education. And uh, education played a big role in my life because my father, uh, peace upon him, had never been to school, uh, uh, but learned to read and write in the French army uh, during Second World War. Uh, he had been a farm laborer uh, in Senegal because in those days, uh, 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 young people from the colonies of uh, Upper Volta, the French Sudan, you know, would go to Senegal to work on the peanut plantations because peanut was the main cash crop which was needed for producing oil and grease in, during the, war, the, war, the wars okay, in Europe. So uh, young people would leave uh, those colonies uh, to go work as farm laborers on the plantations uh, in the hope of getting some money that they would bring back to their people so they can pay the head tax. Because in those days, 
people had to pay a tax for every a member of the of a, of a household, mm -hmm. so it was the job of the young people to go and get the cash that they needed to pay for the the taxes. So my father did that for a number of uh, seasons, and then uh, in 1939, when the war broke out, then he enlisted in the French army as a tirailleur. They used to call them tirailleurs, which has no uh, exact translation into in English because there is, it's a loaded word. Uh, you know, but it was used to, 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 to name the colonial soldiers. So my father uh, learned to read and write in the French army. So he came back after five years in the army with that little bit of literacy and became so passionate about education, not only for himself, but for other people, for his own family, his kids, and for other people. So he trained as a nurse. That's why he was placed in Joliba mm -hmm. as a head of the, the, the health center there. And then, uh, you know, he pushed, you know, uh, promoted education for, for his children. And uh, in, the, in, in that, uh, you know, uh, uh, light, he also built a school with his own money, public school, in his home village in a different part of uh, Mali where there was no school. He built that first public school there with his own money. So which trained, went on to train thousands of young people who, have making a, who are making a difference today in Mali's life. So, so education became really a big platform, you know. Uh, so from uh, the village, I was uh, sent to Bamako, to the capital city for high school, for middle school and high school. And then from there, I went to Belgium. So I went to Brussels with uh, a government scholarship to be trained as a translator in English and Russian. And uh, because of my studies of English, I became interested in the U.S., so at some point when I finished my degree uh, as a translator, I decided to pursue uh, graduate studies just as a way of gaining time because in those days in Mali, we had a military regime and I did not want to go back and work as a translator for the, for the army, uh, for the, at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, mm -hmm. for the uh, uh, military government. So then I came to the US and embarked on, uh, on uh, graduate studies in uh, uh, French literature which turned into Francophone African literature and Caribbean literature. And uh, because my training was so multidisciplinary, uh, history and political science were my, my minors. So uh, that's how I ended up uh, in such a, uh, you know, a context where I could develop, I could build on uh, many of the different uh, strengths that I had accumulated in my training uh, for graduate, in graduate school at, in Georgia at the University of Georgia, Athens. That see? must have been quite a transition quite a from transition. Brussels to yes. Athens, a, Georgia. Well, yes, it was quite a transition, but I was curious because for my, my thesis uh, in translator school, I had translated a book called Race, Class, and Party, A History of Negro Suffrage and White Politics in the South by a certain Paul Lubinson. It was a classic in the history mm. of, uh, of uh, black voting and uh, Southern politics. So because of my familiarity with the text, I was curious to discover the South because I had read about those places. You know, so uh, when I had a chance to go to the University of Georgia, I found it uh, a great opportunity. So anyway, so I was kind of prepared already in, with the background of the, you know, that long walk, long march for, of blacks to, towards citizenship. 
And so, indeed, listening to the mm-hmm. incredible story of your father who fought in Italy yes. at Monte Cassino, right? Yes, uh, right. An hour's drive or so from where I was born and, <laughs> oh, and grew up. Interesting. Um, I was thinking of the parallels with African-American soldiers yes, in World right. War II because, yes. of course, when they returned that's from right. fighting the good war yes. for freedom and democracy, that's right? That's right. Uh, they that's returned right. to a, yes. a deeply Jim racist Crow. and segregated society and, yes. and inspired in many ways the yes. civil rights movement and many participated that's in it. Just like the returning veterans from World War II in Africa That's also right. propelled right. the African nationalist movement. Exactly. They became uh, uh, actors of social change in many ways. On the social level, on the political level, they came with a consciousness. Just like you said, you were uh, you know, African American veterans who did not want to come back to the Jim Crow. In fact, there is a very interesting film, uh, uh, Mudbound by D. Reese. A wonderful film. Yes, quite recent. I think yeah, it's on recent. Netflix. Yes. I mean, you know, so I taught a, a, a mini course uh, a couple of years ago about the veterans as actors of social change, you know, mostly in West Africa, but we made references to the U.S. So, 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 so my father fought in your native area. I heard it was a brutal, a brutal war. Uh, scene. Yes, heard, yes. So it was uh, so, particularly brutal for right. the colonial soldiers that's because right. they were used as cannon fodder. Th- that's right. Uh, in Casino, in particular, they that's were right. thrown to oh. the German machine guns going that's up right. the hill and yes. to so called soften up yeah. uh, those positions. And then the white soldiers would be sent after them. And yes. some of those white soldiers were South African, by the way. Oh, really? And, and that connects to your uh, other yes. great <laughs> passion, which is filmmaking yes, and yes, uh, yes. the connections between sort of social justice and yes. religion and humanism in South Africa, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. have several documentary films that you've yeah. done in yes. South Africa. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first one was mm-hmm. the one that tracked uh, yes. John Langalibalele Dube's yeah. life, uh, mm-hmm. both in South Africa, but also in the Midwest of that, the United States yes. at Oberlin College. That's right. And that was followed by a kind of sequel yes. called Cemetery Stories. Yes, yes. And that focused on the relationship between John Dube and... Uh, also Nogutela Dube, and the missionaries from Northfield, Minnesota, where Carlton College yes. is located, named yes. William and Ida Bell Wilcox, That's right. who were kind of radicals oh. no, in the late 19th, <laughs> early 20th century, and even got into trouble for oh, very much their so. belief in uh, equality freedom and equality and, that's right. in South Africa. Yes, and his, his main motto was, and, and that echoes the independence movement in the U.S., no taxation without representation. That was his main idea, you see. So that's how he was able to link the American idea of liberty and freedom to his own work as a missionary who wanted to empower people in South Africa within the context of a, of a, of a Christian mission, of course. So you can see how uh, quickly he, he, you know, his butt, he butted head uh, with the missionary orthodoxy. Anyway, so you were introducing this. Yeah, yes. and, and what struck me about these yeah, films, yeah, yeah, uh, which yeah. are about self-development yes, uh, and yes. the quest for social justice, mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. how you told them very much as family histories. That's right. That's uh, right why that's did right. you choose this particular narrative? Yes, that's very interesting because, see, I guess it's my, uh, well, my uh, West African Monday training, which is I come from a land where history is lived on a daily basis. History is never just the past. History is the present. History is always uh, uh, present to shape people's lives, to pay, to shape people's sense of identity, but really on a daily basis, more than anybody can imagine here in the Western world, where history is, is the, like a dead letter in a book 
somewhere with the, a, 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 an accumulation of dates and exact dates and so forth. I believe that family history, you know, families, uh, history serves to, to position families, to, to give them their identity, to give them their status. In fact, history is an instrument of creating status for people. For South Africans, people from South Africa, who had been such terrible victims of a terrible you know, colonial system to a degree that was not experienced in any other part in Africa. When I realized that, I said, well, their identity, you know, their ability to stand on their feet will depend on how well they will know their history. And uh, that's the idea I had in mind. I wasn't even sure what I was doing, but I tell people that it's, it's the stories that found me. The stories found me. I didn't find the stories. Because John Dube's story, I had never heard of John Dube when I went for the first time to South Africa with my good colleague, Jamie Monson, Professor Jamie Monson, who invited me generously to be part of a program, uh, of a North Campus program in South Africa. She was the specialist of that part of Africa. I was not. I was coming from Francophone studies. But all I knew was just... You know, there are story, general journalistic reports about the fight against apartheid. Mm. So John Dube, I had never heard of John Dube mm. as the founder of the ANC. Because most people, when you think ANC, you think of Mandela. People are more contemporary, see what I mean? And even rare are people who even think about Albert Lutuli. You see? So people think about Mandela. So I did not know that John Dubé was there at the beginning as the founder, as the co-founder. So from there, now, discovering John Dubé during that trip to finding that John Dubé had been brought to America by missionaries who were from my town in Minnesota, Northfield, blew my mind. Can you imagine? You go thousands of miles away, discover uh, about a character, an important character, he, somebody who's a hero, and then you come back in, to your own town and discover that that person's story is linked to your town in Northfield, a small Scandinavian town, very white. Okay, when I got there in 1985, I mean, I could not suspect that this town had any thread of connection with Africa, with the continent, let alone to discover that in the 19th century. Africa was very much part of the consciousness of the people there. <laughs> you see, so that's the thing. So again, you see, uh, it's a way for me to bring, to make this history come alive again. You see, and film was, of course, the best medium. Because I realized that if you write a book, that book would collect dust on the shelves of a library. But if once you make a documentary, once you make a film, then automatically the film the, the goes to people, you see. So, you know, because of all those reasons, you know, uh, I became a filmmaker really uh, because of the stories, you see. And I say the stories made me, you know, a filmmaker. And another story that <laughs> found you <laughs> as you were making these first two documentaries yes, was, yes. was that of Nogutela yes. Ndima. Yes. Yes. who married uh, John Langali Balede Dube yes, that's right. uh, in 1894. That's and right. It was about eight years ago in Durban, I interviewed the historian mm -hmm. Heather Hughes. Oh, yes, Heather. Oh, my good friend Heather. Who had just yes. published her yes. new, yes. Uh, then new scholarly biography yeah. Yeah. of John Dube. And it was in that 
particular biography that I really was alerted to mm -hmm. the key role of mm -hmm. Nogutela, mm -hmm. not only in John Dube's life, yes, yes. but in sort of the growth of early African nationalism yes, right. in South Africa. Yes. So, um, you know, as Nombonizo Gasa, uh, Shirin Asim, Megan Healy Clancy, yes. and others have shown, yes. you know, the, the voices mm -hmm. of South African women, uh, yes. their power, especially yes. black women, yes. are often overlooked or marginalized in the history Sorry. of South African Sorry. liberation Sorry. movements. Uh, but you show in this in this uh, short documentary how mm. Nogutela mm. Uh, followed uh, or went to uh, America with uh, John. That's she right. was a fantastic composer of music, yes. a terrific singer, the, singer, the leader of the choir, yep. uh, wrote extensively in the newspaper, mm -hmm. was a, a, a relentless fundraiser for Tuskegee in Africa, yes. as Ohiange Institute uh, was later to be known, mm -hmm. um, played a role in, in Ilanga Lase Natal, the yes. Zulu English language newspaper. So yes, she yes. did uh, so many incredible things. That's right. Um, she died suddenly. Yes. Um, in at age 44. At age 44. Yes. What was most striking to yes. you about yes. Nogutela as yes. an historical figure? Yes, you know, after I finished my first two films, Oberlin Inanda, the life and times of John Dube in 2005. I, I didn't really, uh, I didn't know that I was going to be doing a second film, which became the film on the missionaries. Because I told myself, you know, in Africa, in my part of Africa, we have a, a belief in a, no, in a notion called the notion of the sababu. The sababu comes, it's a word that comes from Arabic, asbab. Asbab means the cause, the cause of something. We believe in our philosophy that sababu, you know, any intermediary that leads you to something, you have to pay tribute to that intermediary. There is this belief that if you are walking, suddenly your foot uh, uh, stumbles, knocks on a rock, and you fall, and your hands are stretched, and you pick, your hands fall on a piece of gold. They say, okay, now, what place should you think? Should you think the place where your hands picked up the gold as you were lying flat on your, on your stomach, or you should thank the place where you stumbled, that made you stumble. So which place should you think? Thank. I believe you should thank the place where your foot stumbled because it's because of that your hand picked up that piece of gold. So, so that notion of the sababu brought me to question, you know, to ask this question, say, who are those people that brought John Dube, that made John Dube such a figure, that gave him such an opportunity? And that's when I realized that they were from, the wife was from Northfield. So right there, the story became a personal story because it was no longer a story of South Africa. It was a story of my fellow uh, city people, Northfield people, who went to South Africa. So I realized that their story had to be told too. So that's what led me to do the second film, which I finished in 2009. Now, which title was Cemetery Stories, A Rebel Missionary in South Africa. Now. I wasn't thinking about doing a third film. <laughs> but after a few months, I asked myself, say, there is one person missing in this whole story. I know that John Dube had a first wife, who was not the one that people knew associated with him with, who lived a long life, uh, uh, Angela and Kumalo. Okay? Uh, so I knew that that first wife was nowhere being recognized. And nobody had written about him. And in fact, in the process I had be, of my research, I had been asking the Dube family about this lady. I asked John Dube's uh, last surviving daughter, who died at an advanced age. I said, do you know about Nogotela? 
She said no, because she was born after Nukutela died, of course, because her mother was married after the death of Nukutela. Mm -hmm. So then I could not find anything. I told myself, you know, this lady has been marginalized. I said, if I don't do something about this lady, I will be an accomplice to erasing the story of an important woman and a woman, an old woman, in fact. Because I, I knew that Nogutela built everything with John Dube in equal parts, equal partnership. I knew that. But because she died early and the children that Nogutela, uh, John Dube produced later were, were, came from another wife. So more, one more reason for really turning the page on her. So then I decided, no, I have to do something. And I had already collected a number of elements about her already. That's when I said, first of all, we can't tell a story if you can't find a grave. Because I had been asking people where a grave, if they knew uh, you know, uh, about her and if they knew where she was buried. But I had information that she was buried in, in Johannesburg. I had not started earnestly to work on it. But when everything, every attempt failed, I f f fell back on that article where her obituary was published in Ilanga Lasse Natal mm -hmm. in 1917. And it said that she was buried at Brixton Cemetery. That's when I decided to contact the Brixton Cemetery. So to make sure that she was in the registers, they say yes. Which is located in Johannesburg. In Johannesburg, that's why. You see, when all their work was being done in, in KwaZulu-Natal, but they also had work, they also had a house in Sophia Town. You see, they had a house in Sophia Town because John Dube, you know, between 1912 and 1917, was the first president of the ANC, the South African uh, Native National Congress, uh, the way it was called before. So, so, so uh, that's you know why she was buried in Johannesburg. Okay, so we worked for a year and a half to identify the location of her grave because it was bush where uh, she was buried. It has not been taken care of. The black section was looking bad. It was bush. The white section, you had monuments standing on graves, well taken care of. This shows, again, the terrible thing about reality of apartheid. Se segregation That's goes why, on long after the, death. Yes, you were not the same mm -hmm. in life. You were not the same in death. Mm -hmm. So that was the proof there. So, so I worked with the Johannesburg a cemetery, parks and cemetery services for a year and a half to, to identify a grave. Because that was very important for me in the finding, in the telling of a, his, a story. It's after that point that I started looking for a, a, a descendants through her siblings, who, uh, the descendants of her, of her siblings, because she herself had never had any children. And that's one, of, one more reason why she was erased, mm -hmm. you see. So once I found the descendants who had been sitting for years and years in living memory, Nobody knew where she was buried. I met these elderly people who were sitting and wondering where this, this ancestor of theirs was, was buried. I come to them with information that we have found a grave. So right there, I had to involve the family in reconnecting them with the grave and reconnecting the nation with this uh, uh, grave and also telling the story for the nation, you see, and having then a, a, a headstone built a heritage a, a, a grade, a headstone built on a grave to, to then officially uh, 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 reveal her to the nation. So it was really, for me, a way of, uh, of bringing back 
the his the story of a of a, of a, of a deserving woman, the story of a pioneering woman, but at the same time to 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 highlight the fact that women's history is usually being marginalized and considered as a footnote in the epic of brave men. So women's history is just a footnote. I say no. Women were there, not next to the, uh, not behind their husband. They were standing next to them on the front line. So Nukotela's story shows the, the crucial, a key role Nukotela played in this, in this saga of the liberation. So I wanted her to be recognized. So that's what led me to doing uh, the, the film Ukukumbula Unukotela in Zulu, which means Remembering Nukotela, which I finished in 2014 and uh, was shown on SABC three times and uh, shown at the Freedom Park. Freedom Park, we did a ceremony to take a spirit from the Brixton Cemetery to Freedom Park in Pretoria, where the soul of people who died fighting in different parts of, of uh, Africa and the world, their soul is brought to Freedom Park. Nokutela's story really has hit the people in South Africa in an incredible way. I mean, uh, when uh, uh, the film I finished in 2014, the, the BBC did a, an interview with me. NPR did an, in, an interview, The World, Marco Werman, and then uh, BBC put it up. And they put on, a, 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 wrote also an article about uh, the whole uh, interview with me that they put on the website. In one weekend, uh, they, they told me that they had 450,000 hits in one weekend, you see, which blew their mind. And then a, year, a little later, the story started circulating in South Africa. And even a year later, people contacted me, wow, your story of Nukotela is all over on uh, social media in South Africa. You see, because again, you know, people realize uh, what, uh, how women have been victimized in the telling of Africa's modern history. It also shows the power of digital media That's right. in the 21st century world. That's right. And, uh, Maybe as a way to bring the conversation uh, to a close, since we're running out of time, I want to bring you back to Mali. Okay. <laughs> and to your famous cousin. Yes, yes, yes. Salif yes, Keita. Salif, yes. Because yes. the way that you explained yeah, yeah. how your background um, mm -hmm. and your own personal history has shaped who you are as, yeah. a, as a scholar and a citizen of the world yeah. uh, suggests that Salif Keita really is deeply connected to the griot culture. Uh, without being a griot. Without being a griot. Which is very important. You see, that's right. So yes. you published uh, mm -hmm. a, a book mm -hmm. entitled, mm -hmm. in English, yeah. uh, Outcast to Ambassador, The Musical Odyssey of Salif Keita. Yes. Um, yes. What's so incredibly powerful and important about Salif Keita that uh, you'd like to share with us? Well, you know, uh, again, as you said... Beyond the music itself, that's which is right. so wonderful, well, We spent our childhood together. You know, uh, our families were so closely connected. So I saw really where he started, you know. Uh, I myself was a musician, uh, you know, in my uh, high school days. Uh, I chose uh, a different path for myself, but I used to be a drummer in a band. Uh, we used to play, you know, uh, Jimi Hendrix, uh, 10 years after. All this uh, music, Carlos Santana. So, but Salif is really the one who really focused on music. Because he had a talent, yes. But you see, I told, uh, I tell people that you see, uh, music became, you know, a, a, a salvation for Salif because of his albinism. You know, so many doors were closed to him. You know, as a pers person with albinism, 
you know, Salif was supposed to be invisible. Mm. Because, you see, the way many African, traditional African cultures explain albinism is that people with albinism belong to the world of the invisible. The invisible being the genes, the supernatural beings. They have a whole, you know, uh, construct around these people. So the, the people with albinism are supposed to be coming from that world into the world of the living. So Salif, Salif's personhood was meant to be invisible. But Salif chose to be visible. By that, I mean to be on a stage. You can't be more visible than being on a stage, ascending a stage, because he had no choice. Because, he, because of his eyesight, he, was, he could not study well because he was bright. He's bright mind, but because of his eyesight, which is one of the consequences of albinism, poor eyesight. So Salif couldn't do well in school as his family had hoped for him mm. because everybody wanted to be educated to become a civil servant. And failing that, you see, you know, Salif then, you know, fell back on music. And music, the play, the act of playing music, which I saw him doing in the village of Joliba because he was taught by our teachers. Our teachers who were modern Malians, who were not griots, but who had embraced musicianship in a modern spirit through the guitar. Mm. So that already gave a model to Salif of musicianship separated from the family identity. So Salif learning to play the guitar a bit, and he was a showman, he was a funny guy, I mean, when we were young, and uh, you know, he, he had a good voice, so he fell back on that because he had no other way of surviving. But by doing that, he was also transgressing on so many levels, you see. So, you know, he was transgressing family taboos hmm. because the clan, the caste system in my country, in the, in the Monday culture, is that musician, prof professional musicianship has to be family inherited. The Jalis, the Griots. And Kuyate. Salif, the Kuyate, Jabate. That's right, you see. And Salif was not, Salif was a, a noble, so-called noble, a Keita. The Keita, it doesn't mean that your blood is better than anybody else's blood. It doesn't mean that you are rich. In fact, the nobles tend to be simply the poor peasants. And Salif's family was. And the first African yeah. player of the year when, the, when it was created, Salif the award, Keita. Salif Keita. Oh, and not a Salif Keita. Another. In fact, that used to be called <laughs> Domingo. His, his yes. nickname was Domingo. So Salif was called the Domingo of Malian music. <laughs> you see what I mean? Because it came on the footstep of another nice. Salif Keita, you see? Anyway, so, so music became really, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, in French they say, une planche de salut, uh, almost like somebody who's drowning who just found a plank of wood and stands on it. And that's how Salif used music, you see. I say it also that uh, musicianship for him is not just the beauty of the notes, the harmony between the notes, but the harmony of many dissonances in his life that he had, to, he had to create, socially speaking. He had to find an image for himself, an image that would fit with his, his, his identity as a noble person, but as pr a person who practices music, music mm -hmm. as a professional. Mm -hmm. And that's why world music and the fact of going to Paris, the fact of going to the West, of you know, a, a, a going into exile, literally, leaving Mali, you know, gave him uh, this, this, uh, this space to, to express this identity of the world musician. 
you see, the world music artist. In fact, he became a pioneer in what we know today as world music from the base of Paris, from where you, Tokyo, you know, uh, uh, London, New York. I mean, he, he, he played everywhere, you see, you know. So, so that's what I try to, to, to do in this book, uh, the musical odyssey, you know, that's what I try to explain. Because a lot of people, in fact, even in Mali, they listen to Salif's music, they don't understand. And when I wrote my first books about Salif and took some of his texts and interpreted them, they say, my God, now we understand mm. how deep this, this man is, you know? And people started taking musicians seriously because, you know, for a lot of academics, they don't take musicians, particularly popular musicians, they don't take them seriously. But Salif is a poet. Salif is a philosopher. That's what I tried to show. So, so in that sense, I felt that I had to do that for Salif because, in fact, Salif himself said that he has the voice, but I have the pen. And that's a beautiful note on which to conclude this uh, amazing conversation. Professor Sharif Keita, thank you so much for speaking with Africa Past and Present. Thank you, Peter. And I'm so happy to have met you and happy to have met uh, Mike. Yes, thank you so much for your welcome. And uh, thank you for giving me this platform. It's a real pleasure. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical support is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. You can stream and download all episodes on our website, afropod.aodl.org. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. To get in touch, send email to alegi, that's A-L-E-G-I, at msu.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>